Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. Today, October 27th, is the day, 60 years ago in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crises that nearly exploded into a world-devastating nuclear war between Communist Russia and Yankee Doodle USA was narrowly averted when civilian negotiators desperately curbed their snarling militaries, which were about to atomize this frail third planet from the sun. Today is also my deceased mother's birthday, 110. She was born on this day in 1912, the first child of Sicilian immigrants to the USA. She died at 95 in 2008. Her name was Josephine, like her mother. She was 50 the day Earth did not explode in 1962. She lived through the influenza pandemic of the early roaring 1920s that killed an estimated 100 million human beings worldwide. She married an Irishman she grew up with who died at the cusp of millennia. They had three children, all of whom are still living. My brother, Bill, too, was 79 four days ago, and my sister, Mary Antonina's 75th natal day is Election Day, November 8th. My mother was 54, the day of a minor massacre of Vietnamese children in their small, rustic village in a remote valley in mountains that bordered the coastal plain of South Vietnam on this day in 1966. And I have read this on this program before around her birthday, and I am reading it today on her birthday, which I wrote it. I call it Happy Birthday, Mother. And the following story took place on October 27, 1966. Monsoon winds blew down from China one afternoon in late October and swept across the mountains of the Annamite Cordillera, the spinal cord of Vietnam. Huge columns of rain clouds, the winds freighted from the South China Sea, massed above sharp jungled peaks and streamed through high shallow valleys that were terraced with rice fields or were wild and uninhabited. Rays of sunlight shot through the clouds like shifting cannon fire into windblown trees and palms that broke the shafts into spiked prisms and shadows. The wind was cold, and rain from the advancing clouds hammered the jungled ridges with a heavy roar, flooding valleys and peeling away the mottled walls of primitive homes built of mud and thatch, which were bunched together in lonely villages. Rain relentlessly poured down upon a haggard and straggled column of armed and helmeted men who were sliding down the muddy ridges toward a village in one of the smaller valleys. I was among them, second in the ragged file, and followed the point man into the valley. I was able to see the village beyond a maze of rain-swollen paddies, enclosed by walls of hedgerows and palms that were whipped by the wind. It was a skimpy place, wretchedly poor, as were most villages in the mountains. The farmers and their families lived a harsh existence and were killed early by disease, exhaustion, and hunger. 
In a sense, they were frontier people who had left their culture in the overcrowded coastal plains and settled on its rough fringes among Stone Age tribes they loathed and feared in much the manner of my own ancestors among the Western Indians. The village was an island amidst an ocean of drowned rice fields and seemed suspended in the history of approaching armies. I looked back at the other Marines stumbling down from the muddy ridges and saw the reflections in the brackish water of the rectangular paddies cast against the salt and pepper sky like etchings of war gods. I noticed the point man was having a hard time crossing the valley along the spines of paddy dikes that collapsed under the weight of his feet. He was a short, fat man, hunched in his labored walk in the sucking mud, and were it not for his clothes and helmet, I might have mistaken him for one of the small apes that lived on the higher slopes. His back was bent, his hands grasped his knees and pushed his legs to drive them like sluggish pistons one slippery step after another. His rifle swung loosely from a sling draped over his right shoulder and bruised his hip every move of his legs. His red, jowly face was haggard, almost cadaverous, shriveled like an old orange under the green and brown dappled steel bowl that covered his head, which swiveled from side to side, almost mechanically. His chin and nose arched as if he was literally sniffing whatever might be ahead or around, an ambush hidden in the trees and bushes, a sniper in a palm tree taking aim. He abruptly dropped his head every few moments to detect explosive landmines or booby traps that might have been planted in the fields after the rice harvest a month earlier. His head seemed almost as loose as his rifle, and I would not have been surprised if it turned completely around and stared at me. The thought hardly formed. A shot cracked from the village. Its flat echo was the sound of a popped paper bag at the same instant the point man splashed backward into a paddy. A silence as sudden as the shot lasted only a second. Most of the other Marines dropped to the ground and started firing rifles and machine guns into the village. I discovered myself half-submerged in water and mud, choking on slime and vomit. I tried to focus my eyes on something to shoot at, but saw only a small hill I had not noticed before. After a few seconds, I realized it was the point man's rounded stomach sticking out of the water like a dumpling in stew. A voice bellowed over the gunfire, and it raggedly ceased. The voice shouted again, and the Marines behind me began to withdraw back to the ridge. Three of us ran to the point man and started carrying him. He was dead. A hole in his right cheek blew out the back of his head, which dripped blood and brains after we lifted him from the paddy and had not taken an ounce of weight with him when he died. Our initial attempt to run slowed quickly to a lurching walk. I had his legs and pushed at him as if he was a wheelbarrow, desperate to get out of range of a second shot. We finally dropped his body next to a tree and covered him with a poncho. We spread out along the ridge bottom, which was heavily brushed, and pointed our weapons at the village. An officer crouched against an embankment and shouted into a radio for an airstrike. He shouted again at another officer who was trying to locate the village on a rain-soaked map 
and shouted back into the radio. We waited for the jets like executioners. The village was almost completely obscured by the rain and by fogs rising from the fields. It appeared and disappeared, as if straining to vanish before it was found by bombs, to become as much a phantom as the man or woman who had killed the point man. Two phantom jets came at sunset. The rain had stopped with a suddenness usual in the tropics, and the sky was rouge through holes in the darkening clouds. The jets shrieked down from the tops of the mountains and flew straight for the village just above the mists that blanketed the fields. They barely cleared the trees as they dropped aluminum canisters of napalm. Great jellied globes of fire erupted from all over the village, instantly swallowed by billows of black smoke that was immediately consumed by a terrible heat. The village caught fire. Houses exploded into flame. Their thatched roofs burst into the air. Palm trees flared into torches. Even the mists in the fields were burned away, and we who cowered at the bottom of the slope were slapped by the heat. The jets rolled back and came again. They dived down the same ridges and across the fields and dropped their last canisters into the flaming village. I stared at the fires. I felt the stinging heat against my nose and eyes and smelled the acrid smoke blown off the fires by the wind. Helicopter gunships flew in a few minutes after the jets left, and though they were tossed wildly by the wind, they careened over the paddies like large dragonflies. I heard the heavy clatter of their machine guns as they shot up the fields on the other side of the village. Two helicopters shot rockets into the burning village, then raked it with machine gun fire. A single helicopter broke off and flew towards us and landed next to green smoke erupting from a grenade tossed by an officer into the paddy in front of us. The point man's body was heaved into its open side door like a piece of rubbish. The helicopter lifted unsteadily into the air and with a great burst of power swung onto its side and arched around the mountain and flew across the wind. It rejoined its flock, which climbed over the jungle mountains and followed the jets southeast to the coast. We were left alone again. The sounds of machines and guns were replaced by final explosions of the fires in the village. We waited until they burned down and crossed the paddies at dusk. The wind blew into our faces and stung our eyes with smoke and ashes. A thin man led us this time. He took us past burnt animal pens, each with its own dead water buffalo. The blackened stalks of palm trees towered above us as we entered the ruined village. We first came upon an old man whose skin was burned green and black. He lay on a raised bed of wood that was charred and smoking. He wore a tattered purple robe that had caught on fire but was not completely burned. His eyes were closed. Flies buzzed around his open mouth. His stiffened arms and hands were raised toward the sky. The wind blew at his scorched white hair. We next passed an elderly man and woman whose bodies lay curled like fruit peelings in front of a house that had burned to a bed of glowing coals. The thin man hacked through a wall of broken and smoking bushes with a machete. 
we emerged from the ruined hedgerow into a stone courtyard that was bordered on three sides by a lone stone wall. At its center was a house, its white walls built of stucco and mud topped by a peaked clay-cobbled roof that had partially collapsed. The walls were stained by moss and in parts overgrown with vines, some of which had been set afire. The courtyard was filled with the bodies of children. Some of them were horribly burned or mangled. Others seemed only asleep, their skins a bright cherry color, as if they had merely been sunburned. A few bodies were not complete, and others, more than one, possibly fused by heat. There were at least a score of them, older children, young children, and babies. I stopped and stared at them. I tried to walk away, but I could not move. I did not want to look at them, but I was horrified and could not stop staring. I almost vomited the same instant my eyes filled with tears. My mind started to unstick. Thin calluses that had spread over my sensibilities blistered and ruptured like scabs of wounds. I was engulfed in despair and shame. Ugly sights of broken children in cities and villages superimposed over the bodies, starved and emaciated children whose arms or legs were fly-infested stumps, whose small bodies were raw and bleeding from wounds and sores, who begged and stole for food like desperate young wolves and died alone and unmourned, sometimes murdered by each other. I tried to shut them out of my eyes for months. I had deafened my ears to their screams and pleas, but they persistently haunted my thoughts and filled my dreams. I knew instantly and with chilling horror that the dead children in the courtyard had been left there intentionally, carried from all parts of the burning village by survivors who fled into the fields away from us, perhaps many of them killed by the helicopters that hunted in the wake of the jets on the far side of the valley. My friend Willie Mack stopped and stood with me over the bodies. His eyes were empty, his gaunt face expressionless. Marines passed us and moved deeper into the ravaged village. Their rifles darted nervously like snakes searching for prey. A few looked at the children. Most tried not to. They did not want to add these deaths to their imperiled lives. They saved their sympathy for themselves. They left them for us, I said almost in a whisper. I felt Willie Mack's sudden heart gripping to my arm, pulling me away. Come on, he said, it's no good. I stumbled along with him through the broken village. We came across more bodies, steaming with flies, and in some instances parts of bodies, and the bodies of several dead pigs, dogs, and water buffalo that had been cremated in pens behind the burnt houses. We found some Marines sitting on the hard dirt floor of a partially roofed house, which was fringed by a grove of blackened palm trees. Find some place to crap out, one of the Marines said. We're staying the night. We shared the village with the dead who remained where they died. Heavy rain fell most of the night. I leaned against the door frame of a house that was not completely destroyed, and stared out into the dark toward the moldy courtyard and the dead children. My vision was obscured by smashed, burnt dwellings and hedgerows and by the ghostly density of rain and fogs that rose from the mud 
and were whipped by the wind into tattered streamers that seemed to be souls, leaving the dead, wreathing around the scattered ashes of their homes a final moment before vanishing into the stormy sky. I imagined the bodies of the children withered and curled like leaves fallen from trees, pounded by monsoon rains into compost, their blood leached by the rain, their horrible burns cooled and softened. I turned and shouted into the darkness of the house, Why didn't they get the hell out of here? They knew we were coming. They knew we'd blow them up. Shut up, Willie Mac hissed. You almost got yourself convinced it's their own fault they're dead. Oh, B.S. You probably wouldn't even give a damn if you hadn't seen the kids. I've seen kids blown away. Sure, but not like this, he said quietly. You're scared. You think those kids are your death warrant. You think they're going to get you for this. What about the sniper? What about him? All he did was pop one of our boys. We turned their kids into torches. Of course he was right. I was terrified by the hatred behind the display of the dead children and at the vengeance their deaths demanded. I felt I would be hunted down for their murders, and if I escaped Vietnam, that eventually my own mind would be the hunter. I smoked a cigarette and rolled into a poncho on the floor of the house, but was unable to sleep. I lay awake for a long time and finally became aware that it was my mother's birthday. I had forgotten. Perhaps the dead children reminded me. I wondered if any of their mothers remained alive, and I felt again my fear of their grief and hatred. Happy birthday, Mother, I whispered. Your kids are dead. You say something? Willie Mac's sleepy voice croaked. I was thinking about my mother. You're a cesspool of neuroses. I just remembered it's her birthday. Happy birthday, Mother, Willie Mac said. The next day, we left the dead village and climbed the mountains on the far side of the valley. And that was Happy Birthday, Mother, which I wrote. And this is my mother's birthday today. And now, by Craig Spencer. We may have only a few months to prevent the next pandemic. I am often asked what it felt like to have Ebola. Eight years later, I still struggle to respond. But the truth is that having Ebola felt like guilt. Guilt for getting a diagnosis only hours after entering a hospital in New York, knowing my patients in Guinea waited in limbo for days or longer. Guilt for having so many providers care for me while remembering the dozens of patients I frantically treated simultaneously back in West Africa. Guilt for feeling helpless as my patients died, the worst possible feeling for any doctor. In the initial days of my illness, I thought on my mortality. But when it was clear I would beat the odds, as many treated in the United States ultimately did, I remember feeling solace, thinking I would never have to experience the sadness and despair I saw in those hastily erected hospitals in Guinea in 2014. Surely the world would never be this unprepared again. In March 2020, as COVID surged into New York City, I was proved wrong. On many days as an emergency room doctor, I would see more people die in my hospital, one of the nation's best, 
in one of the wealthiest cities in the world than I ever did while treating Ebola in West Africa. COVID was humbling. At the outset of every outbreak, a small window exists when response means the difference between containment and catastrophe. As the crisis wanes, a similar window exists when there is enough will among people and politicians to push for better preparation for other pandemics. With COVID, that window is fast closing. COVID has been called a once-in-a-century pandemic, but that doesn't mean we are now afforded 100 years of solitude. In our recent past, smallpox and yellow fever outbreaks frequently decimated populations. Vaccines and new treatments helped turn the tide, but with an apparent uptick in emerging diseases, that equilibrium appears to be tilting back. The World Health Organization has declared six public health emergencies of international concern since 2014. Ebola outbreaks are increasing in frequency. There is a very concerning one happening now in Uganda with no approved drug treatment or vaccine. Even diseases once controlled have reemerged. Polio is circulating in the United States again after it was eliminated here decades ago. Multiple factors are behind the rise in the number and diversity of outbreaks. Climate change is altering the movement of hosts and pathogens alike. Population increases place the two closer together, increasing the likelihood of pathogen spillover from animals to humans. And global migration and trade networks allow such threats to travel far afield before surveillance networks identify them or travel restrictions can effectively prevent their import. Yet in the wake of most major public health threats, HIV, anthrax, SARS, Ebola, investments and interest consistently peak only to wane in predictable cycles. While COVID causes over 300 deaths a day in the United States, a largely preventable toll that could amount to double our worst flu season, Congress remains unable to secure funding for future COVID vaccines and response, let alone the $88 billion requested over five years for pandemic preparedness and biodefense. And if political control of the House and Senate changes hands soon and White House leadership shifts in 2024, the likelihood of sustained investment in preparedness could be at even greater risk. Even if the next pandemic is years off, it is likely we have only a few months to lay the groundwork to prepare for it. So what should be done? There are dozens of reforms needed and debated, but three areas require immediate attention and investment. Disease surveillance, strengthening of the global health care workforce, and ensuring equitable access to treatments and vaccines. We likely cannot prevent the emergence of future pandemic threats, and that's what makes rapidly detecting them critically important. But you can't see what you're not looking for. A massive scaling up of disease surveillance is needed not just in wealthy nations, but also in low- and middle-income countries and areas of humanitarian crisis. 
The World Health Organization coordinates an international network of influenza laboratories that conducts year-round surveillance of the flu. A consortium of scientists tracking coronavirus evolution has been built in Africa, and now more than two-thirds of countries on the continent are capable of sequencing genomes. These could serve as models. Strong pandemic preparedness also demands a dramatic increase in the world's healthcare workforce. Bellevue Hospital, where I was treated for Ebola, had nearly as many physicians on staff as were practicing in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, the country's worst hit during that Ebola epidemic combined, according to estimates from a 2015 World Bank report. The WHO estimates that 15 million more health workers are needed by 2030, primarily in low- and middle-income countries. As with Ebola and COVID, it's often local doctors or nurses who recognize new patterns of illness and flag them to health authorities for further investigation. Without a strong front line, many of those red flags will be missed with potentially deleterious consequences. There is also an urgent need for greater capacity to create treatments and vaccines in places where they are often in short supply and last in line for distribution. Before the COVID pandemic, 99% of vaccines used in Africa were imported. Even now, that number remains virtually unchanged. This largely explains why three-quarters of people in high-income countries have been vaccinated with at least one dose against COVID versus only one quarter in low-income nations. The White House warned in its pandemic preparedness plan that as staggering as the toll from COVID has been, quote, future pandemics could be far worse. We remain a simple genetic swamp of the influenza genome away from a pandemic more catastrophic than anything we experienced in recent memory. The COVID pandemic has killed nearly as many Americans as U.S. troops died in all of our wars combined. We need to treat pandemic preparedness as a permanent priority, as we do our national defense, which has allocated hundreds of billions in annual funding, even in times of peace. If we allow the destruction of the COVID pandemic to play out again in the future, we will have only ourselves, not some pandemic pathogen, to blame. And that was, we may have only a few months to prevent the next pandemic, by Dr. Craig Spencer, who is an emergency medicine physician and an associate professor of the practice of health services policy and practice at Brown University School of Public Health. And he wrote this for the New York Times. This is Michael McCusker. Dylan Hauser Schalk is this program's engineer. I obeyed my mother's rules of war, which were basic and distinctly articulated. She would disown me as her son if I bullied or sexually molested Vietnamese women or girls or children. She was, essentially, my conscience, as good mothers are. The great nautical explorer, James Cook, was born on this day in 1728. He passed by most of Oregon on one of his voyages, 
we thought a major river was nearby from all of the brown water he sailed through. It was the Columbia River, of course. The Statue of Liberty was dedicated tomorrow in 1886. The immortal inscription by Emma Lazarus is in volatile dispute currently, as is democracy itself. Quote, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. This is not a sentiment of contemporary reptilicans. Have a gruesome Halloween.